Good morning, Hope. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, my name is Jared. If you missed Trevor's announcement, it is not Trevor. This is not a COVID beard that he is sporting. It is me. Also, for the record, I can't hear your laughter, so I'm just going to assume it's there. Uh, if you guys would uh, bow your heads in prayer with me, please to open up. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being here today. As we dive into your word, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak, your word would convict, that our hearts would be softened to you, that we would give ourselves to you, Father, fully, holding nothing back, and that through it you would be glorified. I pray that as we come together as a community, even though physically we're spread out, that your spirit would bind us, and that uh, through the love that your son gave on the cross willingly, um, God, through that bond, I pray that you would, that you would move that you would move us to action, that you would motivate us, Father. Um, you do so, and let love be our passion, love be our guide, Father. We love you so much. Thank you for the privilege of being here. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so before I open up in Hebrews today, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 8. And before I do that, I did want to make mention of one thing. Um, as many of you are probably aware, uh, Ravi Zacharias, who is a uh, Christian apologetic, a, um, he, he does a lot of different things, RZIM, uh, ministries. There, there's a lot of different things, but Robbie Zacharias passed earlier this week, and uh, for me, he was, you know, if I could pick kind of three guys that really uh, had the biggest influence in my spiritual journey and development, uh, you know, he would definitely be one of those three. And so I, rather than going on and, uh, you know, sharing a story or an anecdote about him, I would rather read the words that RZIM left as, in their announcement on his behalf. And so this is what was said about Ravi, and, and I wanted to, I guess, share this because of who he was and, and how he's touched me. Um, if you are looking for encouragement uh, and looking for something to maybe uh, jumpstart your mind, and he's, a, he's a great source, and so a lot of his work is still available, obviously. Uh, but this is what was said about him. He saw the objections and questions of others not as something to be rebuffed, but as a cry of the heart that had to be answered. People weren't logical problems waiting to be solved. They were people who needed to see the person of Christ. So, uh, just something to share for you. Again, an encouragement that if you're, if you're looking for somebody uh, that you can listen to, it's a, it's a great start. So, as we go, I'll go ahead and start reading. I am going to be speaking out of Hebrews 8 today. And uh, all of Hebrews 8, um, I'll be referencing it a little bit, so I'm going to read it all the way through. And it's a little bit longer, so I apologize uh, for that regard, for having just a look at my head while I read it. Um, also, you may notice that I need these magical things that help me to see better. So, sorry if you're getting a glare on that one. So Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Uh, so I titled my sermon today, Understanding Change. And I guess one of the questions I wanted to start with was, why must things change? And to be clear, it's why must good things change? Because our natural inclination is when a bad thing changes, we call it progress. So what is it when a good thing changes? Is that a regression? Uh, life can be a roller coaster ride. And an example of change that we both look forward to and sometimes can misunderstand is just the simple things in life, like having kids. Some of the most amazing moments in my life were when I found out that my wife was pregnant. And the joy and just the elation that comes from those moments, it's, it's a complete, you know, it's, an, it's, it's amazing. Um, but for some, that same joy can turn to sorrow if there's a loss. And even for those of us that are blessed to have children, the elation that comes with having a newborn baby is immediately followed by exhaustion. And so there's a, an emotional seesaw in that moment even. And then as things begin to normalize and you get to sleep a little bit more, you tend to be able to sleep a little bit more and you're a little bit more rested and then that cute little baby starts saying phrases and cute little things and, and it's wonderful and you're back on that high again and then all of a sudden they actually say adult words like stupid and other things or guess what I just put in my mouth and then you're back into that other stage, another emotional dip and, and so, you know, change is just a natural part of the world that we live in. Another way that we face change is as we age, we get jobs and, and the great thing about starting a new job is frequently, though there's a lot to learn, there also happens to be a lower bar in a lot of cases. And so you really get a chance to really kind of do well with what you're doing. And, and as soon as that happens, they begin to pile more onto your plate. And, and that can be a blessing in itself because the more that you do, frequently the more that you get paid. And that's a great thing. But then the more that you get paid, the more the responsibility is. And sometimes the blessing of the job disappears suddenly when that job dis disappears itself. And so then you're back where you have more time and now you don't have that job. Uh, you know, another kind of fun thing is buying a car or buying a house. I always thought it would be so great to buy a car when I was a kid because I didn't know what finances were. And then I have to buy a car now, and now I, it's not as enjoyable. But it can be. It can be great. And the same thing as owning a home. It can be great. You know, you sign the paperwork, you walk across the threshold, you turn the ignition for the first time in your own car, and it's great, and you're, and you're really excited. And then your kids throw up on it. And then you either have to clean it or it loses value. Um, as it seems that as soon as you drive it off the lot, it loses value. As soon as something happens, you have to reside or re-shingle. Re and so all of these things, you know, life has this kind of crazy way of balancing. Um, and then there's things like age that happen. And then you have to use things that you never had to use before. And even that is its own sweetness because you look at that and you say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm really starting to own this thing. I'm starting to get life figured out. Um, I'm starting to get my kids figured out. This is really exciting. This is really great. And then you get past a certain age, and it's a challenge because if you stand up too quickly, you can faint. How does that work? Why, why do all these good things change? As soon as I get to the point where I can do something, I've lost the use to do it anymore. So the question, I think, for us today in light of this, which I realize that it may not seem like on the surface the change thing fits, but the question is, isn't so much... Why must, good, why must 
change exist. It's understanding what that change looks like. And so I have a couple of questions for you to fit with that. But first, I want to go back and point to verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to reread them. But what this is setting up here in verses 1 through 5, it's establishing uh, the, relation, the, the covenant relationship. It's a reminder of what the covenant existed to be. And so um, we see in this a, a kind of process where Moses acts as the mouthpiece of God. And so, so God speaks to Moses, and through that, Moses then passes that information along to his people. Now, if you look at what happens with the journey from uh, the Israelites outside of Egypt, one of the first things we read about in account of, um, of an example that we read about immediately after that is, is called the pools or the wells of Mara. And in this, you see the Israelites get to a certain point, and all of a sudden they begin having, having some concerns. They're, they don't have any water anymore, and they get to the pools of Mara, and it's bitter. It's undrinkable. And, and the Hebrew nation says, uh, you know, to God, why have you brought us here? Why have you brought us out of these things? And uh, just to kill us, just to allow us to die. And, uh, and so, so Moses prays to God, and God advises Moses to put a branch in the water, and, and it becomes drinkable. And so God provides for his people. Um, it's interesting to note, and this is what I love about Hebrews in general, but it's interesting to note um, that it doesn't, the Bible doesn't say whether or not God imbued the branch with his own divinity in order to make the waters palatable, or whether that branch existed in God's creation, and that in and of itself, uh, just God pointing Moses to that fact. But the reality is, at the end of the day, it was still God that did that. And so we see things like this um, from the nation throughout their journey, where they're, they're running into these troubles, and God will speak on Moses' behalf, okay? And Moses acted as a great mouthpiece, but in, in this process, uh, there was a need for a priesthood. And so through Moses, and then Aaron is the first high priest, the priesthood was established. So this, the first, the verses 1 through 5, it talks a little bit about what that looks like. Um, the priests were limited, or the priesthood, the role of the priesthood, it was, it was what's called an intermediary role. But they really couldn't mediate um, on our behalf. Uh, on, the, on the people's behalf, that is. Uh, because they were not God. They could not speak to God. They were essentially acting as a mouthpiece. And you see that even Moses himself was a better mouth, mouthpiece, even did it incorrectly. If you look back at, uh, let's see, verse 5, where it talks about, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So even in this process, there was failure. And it's telling because we live in a world where we fail frequently. And we tend to ask ourselves that question of, you know, what am I missing? What, what is being missed out on? Is there something that I don't have that's getting in the way of me living this life? Uh, living my best life, some would like to call it. it kind of a humorous mock-up of that. But in order to answer that question, I want to ask you another uh, series of questions, I guess. And it goes something like this. If you could have any one thing in the world, what would it be? Um, job security. Wealth. Uh, more time. Just more time in the day. Uh, that one vacation that would get your mind off of your daily struggles. Would it be that you would want your kids to stop being so... Kids. <laughs> to be accepted for who you are. Just for who you really are. To have your feelings or affections returned or reciprocated by the one that you love. Would it be to be understood? So what would be that one thing that you don't have now that if you did would suddenly change your whole entire life? And what would it be? What would, what would have the biggest impact on your life? And then what would it look like after you got that? The reason why this is an important question is because change is inevitable. Uh, one of the few things that doesn't change is the fact that change exists. 
And so, you know, people refer to change as the only constant in the life that we live. Now, going back uh, to Hebrews 8 and verses 6 and 7, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant has been, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So uh, there's a couple of things that are, that are interesting here. One is if you go back and read Hebrews chapter 1, you'll read about the name of Christ and how it is more excellent than that of the angels. Uh, it's an interesting correlation because that, the word, um, I guess the phrasing of that is consistent in Hebrews which also, a bit of a sidebar, Hebrews is an amazing book. And I was telling, I was telling Trevor yesterday while we were talking, uh, I almost wanted to write like a separate sermon just on Hebrews, just because it's so cool. Like, there's so many really neat things in there. So an encouragement to you guys, great book. Uh, highly recommended, you know. It's one of, those, one of those good ones in there. They all seem to have that punch, though. So, um, but, so in this, in, in 6 and 7 here, we see a pivot, kind of a setup for, for this new thing coming, this new covenant. And... I'm really excited for the direction that this is going because it hints at the fact that there is a better thing yet to come. And, and before we get too far there, I want to ask you a question. So if you reread verse 7, is that saying that God made an imperfect thing? If, you, if we read that, is God, did God make an imperfect thing? For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, if we study and understand our, our kind of basic theology, we know that God doesn't change. And so his law wasn't imperfect. He was not the error. In fact, we see the error when we go ahead and read verse 8 and 9 again. And in verse 8, behold, the days are coming, declare, excuse me, verse 8 starts, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Again, this new covenant is coming. Why is it coming? Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The issue is not with the old covenant. The issue is with us. It is with man. So because man was not capable of following the old covenant, God sent a new one. And the action in that is really quite beautiful. Uh, And I want to bring a story back for those of you that had Pastor Mark for a little while as a pastor. He he, he told the story of early on in his faith uh, he, had, he became a Christian, became a believer, and uh, as a, just kind of a, a sign of how he wanted to live, he put the Ten Commandments up in his room. And I believe he was in his dorm room, I believe he was in college, and put it up in his room. Um, and he said it wasn't too long before he tore them down. When we focus on the law or on these rules, so many times it can be a reminder of what we're not good at. It can be a reminder that we can't possibly live up to that expectation or to that standard. And we saw the same thing with the people of Israel after they've been brought out of slavery, after they've been given divine bread from heaven on a daily basis, God is literally saying, I will feed you, I will feed you, I will feed you every day. And yet still they struggle to hold the covenant. They struggle to do this. And the interesting thing about that is that God's, God's desire, his will to bless his people is his own divine purpose. It's up to him. It's God. And the right response by the Israelites is a legal action to adhere to the covenant. That is the right response by a people that was, that was divinely blessed through the will of the Lord. So even in this, the people struggles. Now, struggle is not something new. In fact, struggle and change itself are something that has de- devi- de- defined our COVID lifestyle to some degree for a long time. Now, some of you may have jobs that were considered essential and are reasonably unchanged, and others are not. But I find it 
I find it interesting that in the, in the time that we live in, this idea of change can be a scary thing. Because we even see here where as the scariest of the scary would happen to the Israeli people, God provided. Time and again, God provided. And so, so, we, so we, in reading these things, we've set up this idea that, okay, the old covenant is, is going away. And actually, just a, a quick kind of, to answer that question of, did God make a mistake? Let's continue on and see what this is going to look like, okay? Um, and the reason why, I'm going to reread 8 and 9 again to set up. Uh, the reason why this is important is because of what follows. So, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And then what follows is this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Our God so loved us and saw that we were incapable of his good covenant, that his solution was to send his own son on our behalf. And my, part of my encouragement for you today is to look at yourselves and look at our lives right now and say, did we, do we have it so much worse than what the Israelites did coming out of Egypt? Every day when I sit down with my children and my family, we eat, we pray, and we say, thank you, Lord, for this food, and thank you, Lord, for this food, and thank you, Lord, for this food. It is such a blessing to have food, consistent food, and even in uncertain times, financially, there are food. In fact, I, there's, there's federal grants being issued for food. And, and there are so many blessings that we can look to that, that just relate to food. In addition to the fact that there's shelter and we live in a world that has shelter available. Now, this is not true for everyone, though, is it? There are those that are homeless and there are those that are sick and those that are hungry. And that's what we're here for. That, that's the people, right? We're here for that. The church is here for that. But... As it relates to our covenant and looking at this, the daily ability that we have to live under a new covenant in which we are not required to adhere to a strict law is a blessing. But the reason why is the blessing. It's not just that we're here. The reason why we're here is what's important. So I, I wanted to, I guess, ask you another question is this, um, and challenge you, I guess, to say what you have been given by God outweighs everything that can be taken away from you here on earth. And so why is it that we fear this change? What change could possibly happen here on earth that can make us fear in light of what we've been given? You see, if you look at, and, and this is part of why I love Ravi Zacharias and, and the words that he shared, is because he was so great at being eloquent about really simple things and, and about this basic theology, this idea that you know, God is unchanging, we know who God is. We've seen that evidence in Scripture. Um, man itself is unchanged without God, and we know what man's nature is. And so really, the biggest difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant is communication. It's how God communicates to us. And so, in reading this, we see that God gave a part of himself, Christ, to act as an intermediary on our behalf, which the beautiful part of that is, God, is Christ is both God and man. What that means is he's lived our lives without the sin, but he's walked these, these paths. He can speak on our account 
because he is both God and man, something that the priesthood, the old priesthood, could never do. And so there's a, there's a beauty in the ability of God to, to look down on his creation and know that he is right and we are failing, and still he says, I want to bring you closer. And that's part of what is so incredible in light of this is the fact that in the context of change, and even if you look at you know, COVID-19 or some of these other things, but in, in that context, if you look at verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, that means that what's replaced is important. But it's not as important as what's to come. We have a challenge here on this earth in the sense that what happens here can be so intense and so important. Uh, my father likes to use the term the tyranny of the urgent. This idea that what we have going on on a day-to-day basis is so important and we're doing everything we can to fill and fit these things. There's almost kind of a terror that says, if things change, does that mean everything I did up until this point is worthless? Does that mean everything I've fought for, everything I've done, is without value? What if, what if the church is not essential? What if my job is not essential? What if my job disappears? And so I would ask you, what can be taken away from you here on earth that God hasn't given when he's already given his son to replace a system that previously was rigid and strict and based exclusively on what you did, whereas now we can know, we can know his heart, we can know his son, we can become more like his son through his spirit. So what are we holding on to? Fear is what causes us to hold on to what we have because we don't know what we're going to have. So when we fear change, we, give, we take the power of change away. And when I, when, I look at, when I look at what has changed for the people in this way, I see a loving God that saw a people that couldn't do what was right and just and needed to happen. And so his solution was to send his son. God hasn't changed and doesn't change. Man, according to 1 Corinthians, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Temptation is also hasn't changed. Man doesn't change unless it's like, unless it's to be more like Christ. And verse 9 is a reminder that we cannot possibly fit that. And so, God gave us the ability to grow closer to him, to become changed by being closer to him, by sending his son as the propitiation for our sin. God hasn't changed, but he did make himself more accessible to us. The new covenant has allowed for man, has allowed, excuse me, for us, nearer to the source of our freedom and rest from the struggles of this world. In light of the fact of what God has done and pointing to the future of what God has had, how can we allow fear to control us? How can we not embrace the changes that God sends our way? Now, I'm not saying that we just ignore the past. I'm not saying that we look at, at things that occurred and say, well, that's not good because now there's new things coming. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, if we, ignore, if we just ignore the Old Covenant and just ignore the, the, the Old Testament, you know, we lose out on the character of God. We lose out on the ability to understand who he is, and, that's, and we can't do that. But if we fear what comes so much that we hold on to what is, we're missing the picture of what change can bring. God's change brings the blessing that's unlooked for and unseen. We don't know how to look at it because we don't know how God does what he does. So what we can hold to 
is this. We can hold to the truth in Scripture. Now, it's interesting here, too, just a little kind of sidebar for Hebrews, but this quote from Jeremiah is actually the longest Old Testament quote, direct quote, in the New Testament. And yet the author doesn't even explain it. It is evident in its own right. It gives us what we need in order to understand the beauty of what is to come. At least when this is uttered, it is what is to come. For us, we can look back and we can see what Christ did, and we can see the fulfillment of this prophecy. So we are not living in a time where a rigid, strict adherence to rules is what gives us the ability to be closer to God. That is not the time that we live in. We live with an advocate. We live with a mediator. And the blessing of that should not be lost on us. So God took his good thing and then gave of himself for us to give us something that is better. So the question that I have for you guys as I kind of close down here is, so what, what thing can you give to God? What can we give to God? We know that change can be a great thing. It can be a difficult thing. It can be a challenging thing. Yes, absolutely. Growth is challenging. Growth is difficult. Um, if, if you guys are paying attention, if you're into to athletics and sports, uh, the Michael Jordan the Chicago Bulls series came out. It's called The Last Dance. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching it. There's some language and things. It's not really for everybody necessarily. Uh, but the interesting thing, if you're into sports, uh, Michael Jordan's kind of known as being this, this kind of powerful, powerful, powerful figure. And, and the thing I kind of took away with it is he's willing to do whatever it costs, like whatever it takes to win. And I thought about that. And I think it's telling because so many people look at that and they say, oh, it's incredible what he could do, what he could do, what he could do. And, and really preparation was a big part of it and, and all these other things. But it's like, what if we had that sort of dogged determination as believers and said, I'm going to do everything I can possibly do to become more like Christ? What if we had that determination to go above and beyond for, for it to be the, the, main, the, the main goal of our entire existence was to become more like Christ, to become more like Christ? And not for our own sake, but for the sake of, of giving glory and honor to him. If that was the thing that governed our action beyond any other thing, wouldn't the world look different than it does right now? And so, so one challenge I would have is in this time of, of, of turbulation, I guess if you want to call it that, uncertainty, why don't we look at ourselves, both as individuals and believers, but as a church as well collectively, and say, what are the things that need changing? Can we honestly say that our church is a place where people go to feel loved? I hope, I hope, hope is. I mean, I'm confident that, that so many of us desire, but is that what other people know us to be? Is that what other people know the Christian faith to be? Is that something that needs to be changed? Do we need to look at what we're doing and under, under this sort of like microscope and say, are, are we pursuing to become more like Christ more than any other thing? And so make, making a change is, is all well and good. Making a change, is, 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 it can be a great thing. Um, making a change for the sake of change isn't really meaningful or impactful, but making a change out of conviction can be a really great thing. Making a change out of fear is a lot different than making a change out of love. And I guess my final encouragement is when we make a change in light of the one who gave himself for us so that we could be closer to him, that's the, that's the kind of change we need to make. So we need to follow the call to you and to me to replace fear with love. In Corinthians it says, let all that you do be done in love. I believe that is both the call to us 
and the encouragement when we read what this, this idea of the new covenant is, is that we do not live under a law that we cannot succeed against, that we cannot possibly fulfill. We live under a law in which our Savior was sent to us by a God that loved us and wanted us to draw near to him. So, if you would, close in prayer with me. I just want to, I want to encourage you to say that what you have currently, right now, is exactly what you need. And what is coming, if it change, if change is coming for you, or, or even if it just recently occurred, you have what you need when you understand that God's Son is our advocate. He's our mediator. He is the one that, that made the sacrifice for us by God's will. And because of that, we have more than we need on this earth. More than we need on this earth. Join me. Dear Heavenly Father, in light of your word, in light of your Son and the Spirit, thank you, thank you, God, that you saw a struggling people. And instead of just leaving it be and letting them struggle under, under a burden that they couldn't handle, you sent yourself, you sent your Son. You gave a way for those that didn't deserve it to draw near to you. Thank you, Lord God, for the privilege, for, for, for the honor of being a part of your family, of being a part of you. Yeah, thank you for your spirit. I pray, God, that you would move within us. We look forward to coming together, those of us that are able to, next week, and, and celebrating being together. So I pray now that as we move forward this week, I pray that you would help us to love those that are able to come next week, and gather, and those that are not. I pray that you would help us to step out in faith, in love, out of love. I pray that we would stop operating and acting out of fear. I pray that we would not let the burden of something that we cannot carry by ourselves prevent us from doing what it is you would have us to do. So I pray that you would make your will clear to us, Father. Help us to step out in love. Encourage, encourage those around us to step out in love, God. We love you. Thank you so much for your son, for your spirit, your mercy, and the peace that comes only through you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.